Welcome to the Gamer's Tavern, Episode 7. Tonight's topic is Shadowrun, and since Shadowrun is my favorite role-playing game of all time, I really just want to sit down and get started talking. Uh, tonight we have with us John Dunn and Russell Zimmerman, and I'd like to thank them very much for being on, but go ahead and grab a drink. I'm going to play the message from our sponsor and sit down so we can get started. Hey, have you heard of The Strange? Hi, I'm Bruce Cordell. The Strange is a role-playing game that supposes that just outside of what we think of as normal Earth, there's an alien data network called The Strange. We're running a Kickstarter right now to fund The Strange. To find it, go to Google and type in The Strange Kickstarter and follow the link provided. The Strange is host to a number of hidden worlds called recursions that player characters travel to and explore. One is a place called Arden, where magic powered by souls and other fabulous sorceries actually work. Bruce and I have designed The Strange to use the same rules engine as Numenera, a rules engine we call the Cypher System. If you know and like Numenera, you'll like The Strange. This message was brought to you by Monty Cook Games. If you want to know more about The Strange, go to kickstarter.com and search for us there. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Gamer's Tavern. Tonight's episode is going to be all about where magic meets man and machine. We're talking about Shadowrun tonight. I'm Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott. And tonight we have with us two luminaries of the Shadowrun uh, universe, John Dunn and Russell Zimmerman. Uh, actually, shouldn't that be three, Ross? Well, yeah. my, my, <laughs> uh, my contributions to Shadowrun are, are fairly minor compared to these two, so... Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here, guys. Yeah, it's always fun to talk about slinging dice and killing trolls. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to have you guys in the tavern. And since you're you're joining us in the Gamers Tavern tonight, we should probably, for the listeners, uh, ask you to tell us about your gaming industry character sheet. And why don't we start with you, Rusty? All righty. Well, I guess the uh, product that arguably put me on the map with Shadowrun was probably Way of the Adept which was a, a little ebook that I pitched to him uh, late in SR4 where I felt adepts could use a little love and the fan base seemed to agree. It was one of the best-selling ebooks of Shadowrun's history, made it to Platinum on drive-thru and all that good stuff. Uh, it's not terribly relevant with 5th edition having hit, but it was probably kind of the first one that got my name out there. Must have for any app player in fourth edition. Yeah, that's that's what I was aiming for. You know, I just felt like they could use a little more love. Uh, I guess the the biggest product I had, or the one I might be the most proud of, would of course be my novella Neat, which was in some ways the resurgence of Shadowrun standalone fiction. Uh, Yay! Partially due to the success of some online fiction sales. Partially, perhaps, spiked by interest in Shadowrun Turns, which I also was lucky enough to, to write with a little bit. But we did announce several months ago that Shadowrun Fiction is coming back with full-grown paperbacks. So uh, I, I will just smugly say I know who's writing a couple, but NDA doesn't let me give details. Uh, Damn it! What about you, John? What's your gaming character sheet like? I've been gaming for a very long time, but uh, started working on Shadowrun in about 
2006. I'd been part of the demo team at the time, and there was a little bit of a shuffling with the Shadowrun Missions uh, living campaign, and I took over development of that. And after, you know, you hit a couple of years worth of monthly deadlines, they start to say things like, hey, maybe you should do other writing for us too. <laughs> and I started working on the fourth edition line in general there. Uh, I worked on Augmentation, Arsenal, Runner's Companion, and then eventually took over as one of the developers for the line, working on Sixth World Almanac and a few other books. I also... Running uh, Wild. was, Yeah, Running Wild. That was pretty much my baby for a little while there. I also worked on launching the ebook uh, product line for Shadowrun with... Uh, the first book was Digital Grimoire, and then we had a number of adventures uh, that were originally written for other reasons that we were able to put together as available for sale and... Of course, the uh, Denver Shadowrun Missions campaign, which we also used to launch. And that really set up the gauge for, I think, how Catalyst decided to proceed with additional ebook exclusive products. Outside of Shadowrun, then, I launched my own company, Meliorvia, which has the Hope Preparatory School line of products and just finished the Accursed Kickstarter. Woohoo! Uh, with Ross, of course. <laughs> and uh, also have done quite a bit of work with Fantasy Flight both on the Warhammer 40k line of role-playing stuff and also the Star Wars Edge of the Empire uh, game line. Yeah, John and I have worked together quite a bit in the past, and uh, I realize now I've done this completely in the wrong chronological order because I should have done John first and then Rusty because then John could have set up <laughs> the whole, I started the ebook line and then Rusty like, I did the highest-selling ebook. You know, it would have just been, thanks. it would have been wonderful, but, you know. Thanks for doing the hard work, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask really quick, um, let's actually bring Daryl into this discussion. Daryl, what is, you know, um, tell us about your history with Shadowrun a little bit. I actually went over this a little bit in our episode zero when I talked about Shadowrun was my first real role-playing game. I grew up in D&D's double worship area, so I wasn't allowed to play D&D. But I was allowed to play Battletech, which a friend in middle school got me hooked on. And at the time, in the box sets and everything for Battletech, they had the FASA catalog. And I was also getting uh, War Games West, which was a distributor back then. They would send me their catalogs as well. I'd thumb through it, and I found something, and it said magic and fantasy and cyberpunk and i'm like what's cyberpunk then i start looking into it a little bit more and read the descriptions and read all the little catalog entries and i'm like eh, i'll give this a shot and got the first book and i read the second uh, the one i got was in 1991 i think it was like one of the first two printings of the second edition shadowrun core rule book and i read that thing until it fell apart and i just don't mean like the cheap binding they used back then with fast they the all pages fell would slip apart out. No, I meant like I meant like the pages would fall apart after I rebound them because I worked at my mother owned a bookstore at the time when I was a kid. It's fair to say so I rebound. It's fair the to book. say Daryl just just read the hell out of it. So yes, uh, and the second one that I bought to replace the first one, uh, and the first third edition one is still on my shelf, but it's barely holding together right now. And you know, just to speak really briefly about myself, um, I too started playing Shadowrun at an early age when it first came out. Actually, I I've played every edition of Shadowrun except for fifth at this point. And uh, I played, actually, most of my Shadowrun experience, believe it or not, is actually online. Um, there was a series of uh, what they call multi-user shared hallucinations, or mushes, in the 90s. And when in the army, I found uh, myself gravitating towards the Shadowrun ones, because you could play 24-7 if you wanted to. There was just everyone, everybody was online all the time. Uh, for you youngsters out there, uh, MUDs and mushes, which are multi-user dungeons and multi-user 
shared hallucinations. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, it But it was basically it was basically text based MMORPG. Yeah, well, and and the 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 thing about the text based ones, of course, is they were at least the the ones that I was playing on were very very role play heavy, very you know mechanics light. And as I said, you could just play. I mean, I, I owe a lot of my writing ability to just like spending t- tons and tons of time typing to people about Shadowrun. <laughs> And uh, I actually got a chance to work on Shadowrun uh, this year. I worked with uh, Rendell Bills in designing the uh, Sprawlgangers uh, miniatures game for Shadowrun, and I uh, actually was a consultant on 5th edition Shadowrun as well. So um, now that we've all kind of talked about like who we are and, and you know what, we've, what we know about Shadowrun, which is quite a bit, I think we have a lot of like, experience in this one particular podcast. In the, within the tavern right now, we have a ton of Shadowrun experience. Um, let me ask you guys, um, let me ask, I'm going to switch it up a little bit. John, why don't you start? Can you tell us about what drew you to Shadowrun in the first place? So it was 1989 in the fall, and I was at Walden Books and saw the Larry Elmore cover oh, of yeah. first edition and said, yes, I need this right now. Love that cover. That is one of my favorite oh, book covers. It's one of my favorite pieces of Elmore art, really. Yeah, me and, too. You know, that's setting the bar pretty hard to start off with. If I'm not mistaken, they just all they did for the second edition was they just fit, touched up the coloring, didn't they? Yeah, it became black instead of blue. That was pretty much it. Yeah, um, and yeah, I think that's a fantastic piece of artwork, and I was really happy when uh, Anniversary Edition was able to include that. Yeah, as uh, the frontispiece, because I, I mean, for me, when the third edition cover came out, as cool as it was, it was a letdown that it wasn't the Elmore cover. Just going, yeah, this is perfect. We don't need to change it. Um, I'm with you but on that. Past one, John. that. <laughs> But past that, you know, I, I loved uh, William Gibson's stuff at the time, and seeing that integrated with the, you know, RPG stuff with which I was already familiar was just, oh, wow, yeah, this is totally evocative. And then, you know, I was uh, high school, college through the early years of Shadowrun, and so just the idea of, you know, trench coat, big guns, and trolls was just fantastic for us, and we played way too much Shadowrun during that era. <laughs> no such thing. What about you, Rusty? What, what drew you to Shadowrun initially? Uh, honestly, with the change of about a half dozen words, John totally stole my answer. <laughs> uh, I, was, <laughs> I, I was Christmas shopping in the you know fall, winter of 89. I don't remember if it was a Walden Books or a B. Dalton, but while I was supposed to be shopping for others, I was killing time looking at some gaming books. And I can say it was the cover that drew me in, but it was that intro fic, Night on the Town, mm. that made me... I, I literally hid the copy of that book uh, there in the bookstore I was in in the mall so that I could get it like a week later once I got Christmas money. Uh, awesome. So it was kind of my first shadow run was you know, sneaking it behind some you know big, boring-looking something so that I could be sure I could get a copy. But yeah, I, I've pretty much been hooked ever since. The other tweak that I'd have and that I can blame it on Night on the Town instead of just the cover uh, would be that I read Gibson later. My first cyberpunk was Hardwired with Walter John Williams. Yeah. Um, you don't get to quite play with the pens or driving riggers quite as much in your average Shadowrun <laughs> product. But uh, yeah, Hardwired uh, came before any Gibson for me. But other than that, really, uh, it's pretty much John's answer. Um, I do have to brag a second for my wife's benefit. She came home from Dragon Con a couple months ago 
with a signed print of the SR1 cover by Ooh. Mr. Elmore, congratulating me on my Shadowrun ride. Nice. Uh, Awesome. So yeah, it's now framed. I hate you. I want that's, it. That's a that's that's a that's a definitely a, a great spouse you got there. <laughs> yeah, she's a keeper. Well, we we met playing Shadowrun. Actually. Wow. Uh, I didn't cool. play on a mush, but I was on uh, Shadowline.org, uh, just a, a bulletin board system for years, and that's where she and I actually first met. Talk I about a critical success. And, yeah, she was she was the <laughs> comet mage. I was the street sam. Once we, you know, bonded our karma pools together, it's, it's all good. <laughs> wow, that is brilliant. The combat mage in the streets, I'm a true Romeo and Juliet story. Rusty, you win the podcast at this point. <laughs> all right, well, I'll see you guys next time. It's been a good time talking with you. But quit while I'm ahead. You know, I think there's some things you could say about Shadowrun um, in its 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 origin, you know, being tied up in that, that cyberpunk movement. I mean, you you and John both mentioned some of the the seminal fiction works of that that launch and it's interesting to me to look back on you know that time period when Shadowrun first came out it was actually not alone in the marketplace for for RPGs or even for for cyberpunk like material but you look well originally Shadowrun was not supposed to be a multi-genre game it was just supposed to be a cyberpunk game but but you, what i'm saying is i think what's interesting now is you look back and you know of all the things that sort of try to capitalize on the, the cyberpunk, you know, uh, cultural movement, if you will. One of the few survivors is, is actually Shadowrun. It's, uh, it's, it's really staked a claim on, on a big part of, you know, when anybody kind of Googles what is Shadow, uh, sh- uh, cyberpunk, uh, Shadowrun is, is, is part of that. You get, Gip, you get Gibson, Sterling, and Shadowrun pretty much, and you might get that trailer for the video game that's coming out in a couple of years based on Cyberpunk 2020 or 2070 yeah. now. Well, you know, and hey, you, it's hard to talk about Shadowrun without at least mentioning CP2020 because they were uh, contemporary. But it became obvious very early on that there was a pretty big surge in the marketplace towards one and not the other. And I'm not slamming CP2020 by any means. I mean, there were some very, very good books for that product line as well. Um, but it, and, and, you know, it wasn't... Even those two are not the only RPGs that came out at that point. There was... I mean, we, we can talk about, uh, you know, GURPS Cyberpunk, or we can talk about uh, Cyber Hero for Iron Crown Enterprises. Um, but Which we what, probably will on a future episode. Well, maybe not. I mean, the, the, the point is that I'm trying to make is that Shadowrun succeeded wildly compared to those products and is really the only mainstay of that time period or that, or that movement in that time period that is still around and still successful today. Do you guys, do you agree with me on yeah, that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I think, personally, I would, uh, you could almost kind of call it a precursor to the, the big urban fantasy kind of movement that's been going on, which, you know, arguably, you know, all Dresden Files, maybe even Twilight, Harry Potter, whatever. I, I was about, eh, you know, don't, don't blame us for Twilight. You know what I'm saying, no. though. Just, <laughs> but, this, this I, I will say this, yeah. my, two, my two favorite fictional properties on the planet are Shadowrun and Dresden yeah. Files, hands down. But, you know, this this mixing of genres, I think, gives it an appeal that maybe Cyberpunk 2020 or other kind of more pure or hardcore cyberpunk material was lacking. Uh, you know, you have, there's almost no character you can't play in Shadowrun. You know, if somebody's a fan of fantasy, they can be happy in Shadowrun. If somebody's a diehard Gibsonite, they can find something to be happy in Shadowrun. You know, I think it, it just kind of opens extra doors for the characters you can play and the stories you can tell 
the fantastic artwork you can draw. I think it's just got a little more variety to it, and uh, I think players respond to that. What about you, John? Do you have anything to say about that? Uh, well, yeah, I think one of the big things that made Shadowrun more successful than some of its contemporaries was the fact that it took the focus. I mean, it made the game concept into the name. So, you know, when somebody says, well, what's this game about? You say, well, Shadowrun is about Shadowrunning. And then you can explain, you know, you're a career criminal and go into that background. With Cyberpunk 2020, you didn't have, or actually Cyberpunk 2nd Edition, I think predating 2020, you didn't have an obvious hook for what are these guys going to be doing in the first book. You talked yeah, about, you're, you know, there was some neat You're talking background. about the adventure paradigm. Exactly. And that and, and Shadowrun does have an extremely strong adventure paradigm. I totally agree with you. And I, I think that Go was ahead. a really big setup for why it stuck around, why it lasted. Because, you know, when you introduced somebody into the setting, it was immediately apparent what they were going to be doing, what kind of adventures they'd be going upon. And that set things up to give it, you know, a real lasting hook. Now, I mean, sure, you can say the NES game, the Genesis game, and everything and everything else that built upon it and you know a fantastic fiction line as well but i think a lot of that drew together you also mentioned it as a lead into urban fiction and i urban fantasy rather and i think there's a real strong precedent for some of that coming from white wolf but you also have to remember that the white wolf games were built very closely on the shadowrun game engine it was really clear that they just said, oh, hey, we're going to take their D6 system and turn it into D10s. And, you know, some of the developers from that time have said, yeah, that's pretty much what we did. So. And if you want to hear us talk to Ari Marmel about White Wolf, because we go into great de- great detail about that company, actually, uh, you can catch us uh, in Episode 6. Five. Five. Sorry. Thank you, Daryl. <laughs> that's, that's why Daryl is the engineer. Um, Daryl kind of keeps me on track with these things. But, yeah, absolutely, uh, we did talk quite a bit about White Wolf, and... And um, you know, I think I was going to say. Speaking of further listening, uh, you may hear us over this recording talk about a lot of things and kind of gloss over them. Uh, these are a lot of core Shadowrun concepts that are very, very familiar to us. For example, Russell brought up the uh, idea that there's no classes that you could play anything you want. Uh, I'm going to post before this goes live. I'll have online a episode a, a little mini episode of the podcast where i'm going to explain a lot of the core shadowrun concepts that way we don't have to bog up the a episode primer, itself exactly uh so we don't have to bog this down with trying to explain everything so if you're if we say something here and you're kind of what's that listen to that i probably explain it to you absolutely and i think you know the only thing i would have to add to what john just said is that um maybe part of the reason that shadowrun is so successful and so resonant in uh, in gamer culture is because it, la- it, it latched onto a niche that hadn't previously been filled, and and by that I mean the sort of leverage style approach to gaming where we're all you know specialists working together to, pr- to commit crimes, which is basically what Shadowrunners are. And there really wasn't a game like that. I mean, there were there were some you know sort of vague movements in that direction, but as John said, they they crystallized it with Shadowrun and said this is what a Shadowrun is. These are who Shadowrunners are. This is what you do, and it made it just an instant click well, with a lot well, of people kind of, who wanted to experience that. If you kind of take a step back, though, that's kind of even what D&D was, was a group of specialists that came together, and, but instead of committing crimes, they were grave robbing, pretty much. Well, okay, but, so, you know, adventurers, adventurers in a fantasy game, though, are, you know, yeah, that's, there's, that's, that's a, a built, different... Yeah, that's a built-in Totally different here. tone, totally different uh, trope. Um, but the idea of like you know you're you're being hired to commit a crime. And there's so many cultural tropes in in movies and films and books. You know 
that are about that. I mean, if you want to do the Maltese Falcon as a, as a Shadowrun camp, uh, uh, adventure, you can do that. The Sting is a primer on a Shadowrun. The Sting. Um, the Usual Suspects is one of my favorite films that you can say that's absolutely a Shadowrun. Uh, what about you, Rusty? Uh, is there things you can point to in, in popular culture that are like, that is what Shadowrun is? My kind of default answer whenever that comes up was like, heat plus pointy ears. Uh, you know, it's, it's another... <laughs> yeah. I'd really, I would say more Michael Mann films than not. You can you can directly translate into Shadowrun. Uh, you know, anything where there's a hitman or a hacker and preferably one of each. Uh, and you could pretty much drop it into the middle of 2050s or 2060s or 2070s Seattle and, and be pretty much good to go. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely that whole kind of heist or specialist kind of subgenre, which arguably includes stuff like the losers and the A team even. Uh where Oh yeah, well you know, that's Pink Mohawk all yeah. the way. <laughs> what about you, John? What what do you point to when you say, you know, what is Shadowrun and you want to talk about it in terms of popular culture? Um you know, I tend to avoid that really because um <laughs> I actually think that there's actually been quite a bit of inroads with Shadowrun as part of popular culture, particularly because of the games. Uh I think when you're t- usually the people that I'm going to have to explain it to are going to be people who are part of the gamer culture, in which case I can just say, you know, look at these video games. And that offers a really handy reference. But yeah, you know, Usual Suspects and Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels really captures the oh. feel for many of the games that I've run. Yeah, all the, That's all the ones point. everyone's talked about so far are ones that I always used to point to until I got hooked on a TV series that Ross mentioned a moment ago called Leverage. Sure. At this point now, every time I start a Shadowrun campaign, especially if it's new players, I will say, okay, before we get started, um, you've seen... You've seen Leverage. No, you, <laughs> you've seen Leverage. Okay, come over with me. We're going to start making your characters. You people who haven't... You sit down and watch the pilot episode now. The dude from, <laughs> the dude from Angel, imagine he's seven foot tall and a troll... Uh, the chick with the white hair, she's actually an elf. And <laughs> I would I would call Seriously. Elliot an orc myself, but yeah, definitely the point stands. Well yeah, he was he was pretty much the street Sam archetype. We have the hacker, the decker, uh, infiltration specialist, the face. Yeah. And yeah, of well, course the mastermind would of course be the mage because dear god, some of the shit he pulled off was magical. Completely <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, I think, um, you know, one last thing on just about talking about Shadowrun's success is it had it had two things going for it, I think, that, that not a lot of other products in that time period had. One of those being a really, really strong support in terms of fiction. Like Rusty mentioned the intro story as the thing that, that dragged him in and said this is what, you know, he, he's interested in. Um, and you can look back at the... Uh, the Shadowrun novels, and you can see a lot of authors who are extremely talented and who are, you know, still writing game fiction today in some cases, or have moved on to, you know, bestseller status. Uh, you know, Mike Stackpole, Lisa Smedman, Mel Odom, just to name a few. Absolutely, and from the very beginning, it was clear uh, when Fast released Into the Shadows before they even had the agreement with Rock that this was going to be successful because that anthology just sold out ridiculously quickly, which was, I think. A- large part of the reason why they were able to set up the uh, rock agreement to get the broader distribution. Into the Shadows is absolutely one of my favorite Shadowrun books of all time because it does include some fantastic... Uh, I, I love Mike Stackpole's fiction but specifically Shadowrun fiction is by far my favorite. So he's got two stories in there, one of which is uh, a Wolf and Raven story, which I just lo- adore. And uh, there's the story about the uh, uh, Jack the Ripper Decker and God, I love that guy. That was a fantastic <laughs> one. Yeah, 
to excess for me every single time. Nigel Finley. Yeah, it's, I've already. It's hard to go wrong with with uh, Finley's work. Uh, to me, actually, one of my absolute high points of my Gen Con this year was running into Michael Stackpole, and I, I was able to talk to him and vice versa about my Shadowrun Returns anthology piece, which I kind of wrote with one of his characters, Green Lucifer, uh, and it hadn't really oh, yeah. occurred to me that I might be stepping on toes or, you know, using someone else's character. And it was just awesome to to talk to Michael Stackpole about my work with one of his characters and not have him, like, spit in my face or something for dropping <laughs> the ball. You know, it was, it was kind of unreal. I, I could have gone home Wednesday night before the con even started and been happy. You know, I've met an awful lot of authors, and Mike Stackpole, first of all, he's, he's a class act. But number two, he he's not known for spitting in people's faces. But, I just want to yeah, make didn't, sure didn't that's clear. To imply that he was. Send uh, your but, emails to Rusty yeah. Zimmerman at. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, I've been I've been reading Shadowrun fiction since I was fourteen years old. Uh, my first adventures were Dragon Hunt and Elven Fire, but Stackpole wrote the intro fic to Elven Fire, and that's where this character was from. And then for the anthology, which was set back in kind of the SR1 timeline, I just instinctively went to that old favorite character of mine. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was unreal to to get to meet him and shake his hand and have this, you know, weird kind of shared experience of, of liking the same character that he created. You know, it was pretty unreal. So John, do you have his favorite novel aside from Into the, Into the Shadows? Uh, I think the one I'd go back to most is actually the one Daryl already mentioned, which is To Excess. Uh, Finley yeah. was amazingly talented and went far too early. Um, yeah, I agreed. really enjoyed To Excess in particular because it came out right after we had finished playing through Universal Brotherhood. Uh-huh. So, oh. Having just played the adventure and then pick up the book and go, ooh, I just did this. You know, we should... Was um, really let's, awesome. let's let's uh, Let's talk about Universal Brotherhood a little later. Because we sure. definitely want to hit that, but um, that's a really good point. That's uh, and um, it kind of brings me to my second reason why I think Shadowrun succeeded far beyond some of the others. Uh, it had a real international appeal. There is a absolute rabid group of Shadowrun gamers uh, overseas in Europe, uh, specifically I think in Germany mostly. Germany. Definitely Germany. Um, but there is also there is also Shadowrun fans all over the world, and it it was. Because there it took place, there was a major Japanese fan base back in the day too. Yeah, there you go. See, I did not know that. It, it's just basically still does. There was actually an unreleased Sega CD, I believe it was, a video game that was made for Shadowrun in Japan that was never brought over to the U.S. Wow, and I am learning very, all kinds very of new limited things. graphics the, if you try to play it. it. The Japanese fan base actually also has a uh, manga series of Shadowrun stuff. It was which is never wow. translated or anything. Um, that I have not heard of. Yeah. And a Tokyo source book that was never translated. What? Um, they've, they've yeah, got... and some of the uh, Shadowrun Missions material actually was translated into Japanese, which was really freaking cool when I got Man, to see that Man, I want Japanese. to buy the Tokyo source book right now. Good and luck. speaking of, how many, how many Germanys? How many source books were written in Germany that were never translated? I know our, the original Arsenal for third edition was printed in Germany but never translated. It's, Is that right? It's really not all that much that came out exclusively to German. Most of the stuff ended up being cut up and put into other books. Um, I think there's maybe two or three products that were never translated. I know even 
fairly recently they had a uh, Blood and Steel, I believe would be the translation. Maybe Blood and Sport, uh, like an all-urban brawl book. And I worked with those guys and chatted with them a bit because at the time I was doing an urban brawl missions adventure. Uh, but I'm not sure, and I know that hasn't really made it over, but I think it, you know, regardless of how many we're talking about, I think it speaks very well of the German fan base that there are any, you know, any product that would be released in German and not be translated. Shows you how dedicated and, and popular they are, you know, with the game over there. Absolutely, and I mean, I don't know how much you want to get into publication history, but the game probably wouldn't exist as a pen and paper game if it wasn't for that German fan base right now. Wow, that's yeah, I, that's impressive. Because in the primer, I talk about how uh, Fantasy Productions, which was the company that was translating the third edition books in Germany, ended up with the rights to Shadowrun when it, uh, at the end of third edition as it transitioned into fourth edition. So I'll go over that in the primer if you're curious about that history. Okay. And, you know, Rusty mentioned Urban Brawl. I have to just make a quick point. One of my first and favorite online Shadowrun characters from the, the Mud and Mush days was a uh, former combat biker, or former uh, outrider, sorry, for uh, Urban Brawl. Uh, a, solid and, a solid and reliable character background. Uh, Urban Brawl has always been kind of a favorite of mine. I felt like it was a little bit of a shame that Attitude didn't go quite as in-depth into some of the games as, say, Shadowbeat did back in the day, but uh, you know, there's, there's always ebooks and individual writer obsessions to try to make up that sort of thing, I guess. Well, Shadow Beat's a hard act to follow, though. Oh, yeah. um, but go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Daryl, you were saying? Oh, I was just going to say, I was one of those idiots that whenever I I got a... Uh, was it Kill, Killing Blood, I think it was? Was the late second edition uh, the, Urban Brawl Adventure? Killing or? Glare. Killing Glare, that's the one. When I got that, it said in the back, don't try to run an entire urban brawl game, even if you have the advanced combat rules that are faster from uh, the Demilitarized Zone, or Downtown Militarized Zone, which was DMZ, which was a box-based tactical game for Shadowrun. Don't try it. I tried it. I was like, (laughs) challenge accepted. Four hours later, I'm like, this was a bad idea. (laughs) Well, four hours later, and... 15 minutes into a two-hour competition. Hmm. Well, that's actually really fast if you remember that Shadowrun has three-second combat rounds. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> in terms of your uh, real-time to game-time ratio, you weren't doing too bad. Eh. Well, a lot of it was moving around trying to find each other in the grid. Uh, I'm probably not, I'm not going over this in the primer, but Urban Brawl is a sport that's popular in Shadowrun. They block off, I think it's six square city blocks, and just blow the living shit out of each other with live ammunition, but they're all wearing full body armor at the time, trying to score goals by running through these dilapidated buildings into zones. And there's a dude on a motorcycle that's going to run around to transport people, but he can never transport the ball. There's a dude with a machine gun. Yep. Uh, I don't want to give the whole roster breakdown, but suffice it to say, uh, it's pick up, kind of the pick love up child attitude, of the old fourth edition book. Yeah, kind of the love child of football and firearms. Mm-hmm. Also, I would I would recommend, in addition to, to attitude, is uh, look look for um, uh, Shadowbeat, which is a you know harder to find product for uh, third edition. Um, you can usually find it used on the secondary market, and I believe it's one of the reprints on Drive Through, but I'm not 100 sure. It is available sure. on Drive Through. And okay, and they'll be a link in the show notes. If I'm not mistaken, that is a Nigel Finley. I believe so. I seem to recall there are multiple authors involved. I'd, I'd have to check my shelf to be sure, but I can't really see it from here. 
Okay, so Daryl was really interested. He wanted to talk about some of the Shadowrun meta plot tonight. I'm going to let him kind of oh, lead us into that. Oh, yeah. You want to talk about what got me really, really into the game? Were two things. One, most of the books... Most of the source books for the game were written in-universe. They were messages posted on this Reddit-like bulletin board system. Shadowland. Exactly. It was called Shadowland. And people would come in and comment on the text, Shadowrunners from within the universe. And through all their comments, an actual story was being told. You could, and each character was an actual character. They had motivations. They had personalities. It made the it was, uh, game feel very immersive. Very immersive, very alive. Another thing that they did, which this is what brings in the meta plot to me, is they advanced their timeline almost in real time. So the game started in 1989. That was 2050. Uh, by by the time second edition came out in 1991, it was now 2053. So and they kept advancing the timeline as they went through the Shadowrun eras, and through that they were able to make these changes to the game world uh, as events would happen. And when you read the the back history and the little bits that I talk about in the primer, it seems like it's really really dense backstory, and there's a lot of stuff going on. And then it seems like there's not really as much going on, except for when you try... I found this out whenever I was playing... uh, I was starting up a 4th edition campaign, trying to describe the game world, and I realized I was touching on as many events as were in the backstory. It's like every two or three years, the world blows up, almost. Now, Daryl, I think it's important to point out that this advancing timeline thing is actually a tradition that was started by FASA, pretty much all of the FASA products... Battletech especially. Battletech and Shadowrun especially. Were, that was kind of their trademark, was that they would advance They would advance timeline in, sort of in lockstep with uh, with every year that passed in, in our world was a year in their world. Uh, I think yeah, another important thing uh, about those early books, and I mean, still is going on, but it was also very modern for the time, because this was an online bulletin board system, but remember, these games started in 1989. You know, you're talking two decades before Facebook was a thing. You know, uh, <laughs> online message boards were still pretty new, if nothing else. You know, So it, it added that kind of cyberpunk layer again, and it showed just yeah. how ubiquitous you know, the electronics and the technology and real-time communication and stuff was in the game world. So it, yeah, we're, talk, 19- we're, talk, we're talking technology level from like the movie War Games, for God's yeah. sake. In, in 1989, in the, in the book, it had this beautiful thing called the Pocket Secretary, <laughs> which was a phone that you could carry around with you that was also a computer. And, and I was like, wow, you know, if they had just said, and it also takes pictures... Well, you know, <laughs> and it weighed less than two kilos. Yeah, yeah, and you know they they would have really been on top of something. <laughs> modems were also a big part of the history of the game at that point, and you know modems were still a big thing in the real world at that time, and people were you know dialing up to isolated BBSs that really had no connection to one another, and that was really what Shadowrun was reflected. Exactly, um, and one of the things I love about first edition, which you know you can't get everything right is the fact that they said there will never be a wireless modem it will always require a wired connection oops mm. at the time that's what everyone genuinely believed you know it's i guess kind of hard to blame them but but yeah it was and well with, and and with the technology i always i always understood even that even after we moved to a more wireless world but we hadn't in Shadowrun it made more sense because there was a lot more information getting pushed via the matrix because it was full sensory yeah, the other but, cool thing about pocket secretaries was that they cost about three thousand bucks. 
Uh. <laughs> hey, have you tried buying a cell phone without a plan, man? <laughs> Not that far off. Uh, okay. So, Daryl, what else were you interested in discussing with the Metaplot? Like I said, I, w- I wanted to talk about some of the, the big events that really kind of shaped the Shadowrun world. Because, yes, the plot was moving and, yes, stuff was happening. But the big thing that really kind of broke Shadowrun away, mostly aside from the immersive bulletin board aspect, was a supplement we've already mentioned, Universal Brotherhood. Oh, yeah. That was the first big oh my god, the world has completely... This world that just got started has already had a big catastrophic thing happen. Which, spoiler alert, uh, the Universal Brotherhood was a charitable organization in a dystopian cyberpunk world. And it was kind of built up through the source books. It kept getting mentioned. This is another thing that was really great, was you'd get all these little tidbits fed in over the source books, and then like you read something and like oh i remember reading that two years ago let me grab that source book and read up about it they were all interconnected exactly and little hints and everyone thought oh universal brotherhood it's awesome they're kind of cool they're the only the shining beacon of light and then you find out they're a cult and you're like oh okay but still they're doing good even if they are kind of hippy dippy cultish and then you find out that they're actually interdimensional beings from an inter, interdimensional insect spirits from a meta plane that are seeking to subvert and infiltrate our world to take it over and eat us all yep that's pretty much what happens and, and when you find that revelation it's like holy <laughs> shit well i'm not giving them any more money <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the, in, the the insect spirits plot line it ran on for uh Four or five years, I believe, until Chicago. Was that, that was right? 2057, if memory serves. Uh, 2055. Okay. Sorry, I, I kind of have a competition with Bobby Dreary oh, over I'm who knows more Shadowrun history. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, Tom Dowd's novel is another one of my favorites. Uh, uh, Burning City, I believe. That's the one where they cover the Carmack blast and all that. But anyway, I'm getting way too deep into this one but yeah insect spirits are one of my favorite storylines that came out of those early books where it was just when you're reading it the first time it's just such a whammy out of nowhere because they've already set up they've just set up this world and the rules are there you can read in the rule book and now here's something that's completely different and you're and it just immediately bam right out of the gate okay this is a world where anything can happen even with the strict rules and it was it, it was a gut punch to the whole fan base because nobody knew until the book came out. Yeah, so it was it was one of those things that I think nowadays would be completely spoiled. Somebody would leak something or rumors would get out or some errant podcast interview would say something crazy about the moon crashing into the planet or whatever. But at the time, I, it was just a complete sucker punch. I think that's part of what made it so effective was that it did blindside everybody like and it, it offered a point of uh, it offered a point where everyone could kind of come together, kind of like um, a shared experience, kind of like Dungeons and Dragons. You can sort of ask, "Well, did you play Tomb of Horrors?" And everyone has their own story about Tomb of Horrors. You can ask, you know, "Did you guys play Universal Brotherhood?" And if you did, you know, and, and ever, ever suddenly everyone has a story, you know, about their group playing, you know, Universal Brotherhood or playing through the effects of that, or or Queen Euphoria, which came out about the same time as well, which had the same sort of plot, but I think Missing Blood did it far, far better. Absolutely. Oh, I love Missing Blood. Queen Euphoria is not bad, though. No, but it, it, there isn't a lot of point in playing both. <laughs> True. <laughs> 
I actually I actually do like running through both of them when I first start a campaign because it's like, oh, we just found out this big huge secret. Uh, okay, and then I run something else, and then I run Euphoria, and then I actually twisted twist the timeline on the adventure itself so that the punch happens again. It's like, holy shit, these things are here too. They're tr- they're not just trying to they're not just trying to infiltrate this. They're trying to infiltrate. The entertainment industry yeah. and corporations. One way to make sure nobody trusts any of their contacts ever again. Mm-hmm. The the best part was the timing. I mean, just as your characters were kind of getting a little cocky, they were kind of like, I, "I'm figured this out. I know what we need to do to be awesome." You know, they had just they had just basically established themselves as kind of badass shadowrunners, and then you're like, "Oh, by the way, insect spirits. Have fun with that." <laughs> <laughs> and that plot line was one of the best, and it ran through where. You can get that punch a third fucking time when you play um um uh Shadowrun uh, Returns. No, 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 I was saying Eyewitness. Oh, I believe, was that, no, no, double exposure, double exposure. Uh, double exposure is where you're you're getting blackmailed by an undercover FBI agent to go into, I think it's called Project Sunshine. I believe it's called. It's a big corporate charity project to uh, help build up the neighborhood, and it feels very Universal Brotherhoody. But it's got corporate sponsors from Rinraku, and you you already know they know about them, so they're not involved. But blah blah. And so there's this big charitable organization they're building up, and you start researching, researching, and you find out what's actually happening is, oh, these homeless people they're letting them they're letting them work, and then they get a sin, which is a system identification number, basically an identity, and then they can move into proper society off the streets. And they're like, okay, where's the catch? And then you find out the catch is, oh, hey, uh, Rinraku is actually performing illegal medical experiments on some of these people. And okay, and they're like, okay, we found the hitch. This is the twist. And then you find out, uh, no, well, Rinraku was contacted by Sunshine, who which is owned by the Universal Brotherhood. Ha. So, what's the after the insect experience? What's the next meta plot bit that you really enjoyed? Th- this one was a lot more subtle and ran for a hell of a lot longer. But it was the immortal elves and the great dragons, and all their machinations. Rusty knows a little bit about that, don't you? Uh, I do, but but I just <laughs> spat on my library floor. Uh, no, uh, it's different strokes for different folks. For as much as I'm a, a tremendous elf fan in the setting, and the, the elves have their own countries in a couple places, uh, but honestly, I got a little tired of the immortal elves by the, the end of the day, and I always liked picturing the, the elves that kind of grew up in this fake elven culture, this kind of neo-fascist elven country colored by the immortal elves. But I actually never personally got very enamored with the immortal elves themselves, which surprises well, this, some people. This whole thing, the the immortal elves and the gray dragons, though, that's really um, the the important thing about that is that this is their bridge between Shadowrun and Earthdawn, and it was something that really hadn't been done also in the in the role playing industry before. Was that you had two completely separate lines that actually took place? You know, they were contemporaries of each other. You know, there were people that there were people and things and places that were in one that were also in the other, and it's, it's sort of like uh, Earthdawn was kind of like the early primitive fantasy world of Shadowrun. Yeah, and I go over Earthdawn and the Shadowrun connection a little bit more in the primer as well, if you'd like yeah. more information. But that's where the Immortal Elves and the Great Dragons—that's kind of their whole thing—is is all kind of tied up in that. Which, of course, nowadays because uh, a different company owns Earthdawn entirely, um, it, I, I hope that that stuff is kind of on the back burner. Yeah, it's, it's largely been kind of swept under the rug. 
there's been, you know, the big reveals over the years, uh, and it's, we're not retconning it away in more recent products or anything like that, but it's, it's definitely been downplayed, uh, very strong. Well, a lot of the big, a lot of the big players in Shirshengai are kind of got shoved into the background and they're all holed up somewhere trying to lay low while the heat dies down after they were basically the regime was toppled yeah so well you know if you if you want to talk about Shirshengeyer um Rusty is probably the right guy yes hello (laughs) um yeah and and like I said my I actually was glad that that happened uh and that some earlier products had kind of swept them out of the country a little bit uh because to me, it just left that playground open for a new generation of leaders of that country that could be a little bit more human and a little bit more reachable by player characters. My, my last big adventure product was uh, a compilation called uh, Elven Blood, uh, which... Which was very good, by the way. Thank you. Uh, it was a lot of fun to work on. Uh, but uh, But in it, you know, the player characters are able to get a lot more hands-on and personal with the princes instead of these princes being millennia-old archmages that are Elminster plus Drizdo Erden plus Elrond half-elven, you know, all tied up into one, you know, it, it kind of was able to lower the power scale a little bit and uh, make them a lot more approachable and uh, a little more similar to, you know, the guys you'd see running a mega corporation or other kind of touchable, approachable things that GMs could use in a game uh, without, you know, feeling some obligation to a previous game line and, and that sort of thing. Well, you make a really good point. I mean, the whole metaplot issues with the Immortal Elves and the Great Dragons, they were based on personalities. And when you compare them to Elminster, you do make a point in that the these personalities, I mean, while they were really interesting to me, and, and I really thought they were all, you know, for the most part, very, very, very cool. Um, they do present certain challenges because they are personalities and not, uh, and, and, in, and in a world where you can't really be um, too vague about personalities, you have to, you know, release some concrete information about them from time to time. Um, it does present some challenges in terms of writing them where they are relatable by a GM and where they won't just, where they won't just serve as obstacles to players doing things. Oh, definitely. Um, I was just going to say, and also as a writer, it's sometimes difficult because, at least for me, you know, coming into the game after it had been out for 21 years, uh, or what, you know, uh, you come in and I I think there's also a a real sense of kind of legendary status to some of the older crew. Um, you know, where. Aaron the scribe. Yeah, you know, and and you go, well, I I know that that's someone else's character. I know that that's someone else's to an extent kind of avatar and can i do it justice um i I mentioned earlier with with this not immortal elf green lucifer and michael stackpole at the time when i was tackling the product for the shadow returns anthology i just didn't have time to feel intimidated i was just too excited to have gotten the email and gotten the offer and i wrote him the story in about three days and sent in a first draft uh, and I just didn't have time to second-guess myself and think of it as someone else's character. But to me, when you're taking on one of these kind of legendary characters like a, a, a Harlequin or, or one of the other immortal elves that's been the focus Lackey point of whole books, you know, it's it's a little bit daunting. Um, and I personally, 
I don't know if I'd feel very comfortable trying to tackle it that way, you know? What did you have to say about that, John? I just think that the uh, Immortal Elves and the Dragons are awesome from a plot development and setting development aspect. I think they're a great tool for storytelling from the perspective of somebody that wants to do a TV show or a novel or perhaps provide some background information. They are absolutely useless for role-playing sessions. I would slightly disagree there because it's all in how you treat them. If you try to treat them like one person you can overcome, yeah, they're useless for that, especially in older editions when none of these people had stats. So literally it was, the rule was, you lose if you try to fight Harlequin. But if you tried to use them the same way you use Megacorps, where it's all these different machinations they've got going on and they're just puppet masters from afar, yeah, you can use them as basically plot elements rather than less more plot elements and less as characters but that, that's kind of my point they're useless yeah. as characters they are great plot elements which is what i had said initially when you're setting up the plot they're ideal for that but they're not useful for interaction with mortal characters that don't have their same kind of power level which and, this argument's starting to sound very, very familiar. Have we had I mean, this on Dump Shock already? <laughs> uh, I, not likely. <laughs> well, I, I would say there's very few arguments we haven't had on Dump Shock yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't been point. active well, in Dump Shock for a very long time. I would say, just to, just to back up what John's saying a little bit, um, I think part of the reason where these characters came from is, again, if you, if you kind of back your... If you widen your focus a little bit and look at FASA in general at the time... You know, what they were doing with Battletech is very, very similar. They had a core cast of these extremely powerful, extremely influential like characters. Hans Davion and uh, yeah, but Steiners. Exactly. And, and one of the things I was trying to get to, though, is that when you're setting up the novels, they're fantastic. Yeah. Because having these kinds of characters to be able to tell these broad, sweeping stories, that works extraordinarily well because you can have enormous ramifications in their actions and, you know, Fallout that works in a novel setting where you don't have to be setting up a story for, you know, a game group to interact with. And the limitation is, I mean, I mean I, I'm trying to also agree with, in some cases with what John's saying, is um, in a universe like Battletech, you can have the characters doing really important, meaningful things very far away from those really big, important characters because it's a universe, right? But since you're all on one planet... And some, and often, almost always, one country, or uh, I should say continent, um, for Shadowrun, uh, it's a lot more difficult to kind of avoid territorial, you know, things where the GM is like, yeah, but, you know, Aaron would never let that happen here, kind of. You know, there's a lot of... I mean, you there, can there, even get that with a uh, there's a lot he's, of, he's, there's he's, a lot he of may issues. Be off in, he may be off in Germany, but it's such a global society, and his reach yeah. is so far... He could still shut you down, even you, on the other side of the planet. It's it's a different story when you're in those characters' backyards. That's all I'm saying. I, I think to this day, Harlequin is probably one of the most divisive characters in Shadowrun, uh, in that you either love him or loathe him. And I think, uh, as an amateur sociologist, in that I've taken like Sociology 101, you know, or you can <laughs> you can probably track that to a chart of did you run. The Harlequin Adventures, or did you play in the Harlequin Adventures? <laughs> and if you were oh, the yeah. player... That, that might be an Iran. Yeah, but you know, it's one of those things where, you know, there's grown men in their 40s that to this day are leery of anyone in mime face paint for reasons that have nothing <laughs> to do with just a grown man's moral disdain for mimes. 
and has more to do with anybody in Harlequin Clown, you know, paint. Because 20 years ago, they felt powerless in front of an NPC if their GM was a dick about it. I'm going to actually go out on a limb, go a little further here and say, I think, I think one of the challenges that Shadowrun as a brand still struggles with today is basically sort of those uh, the big NPCs, and not specifically Immortal Elves and Great Dragons, but just big NPCs in general, overshadowing the individual's contributions, I think is still something that the, the brand struggles with even today. I Absolutely. I mean, that goes back to the whole Mr. Johnson is going to betray you in the last part of the adventure. I mean, that turned a lot of people off of the game from the very beginning because... You know, they thought they were scraping and scratching and playing D&D and accumulating their treasure hoard, and suddenly the treasure hoard was stolen from them just as they thought they were getting it. Uh, there's certainly a strong level of alienation among some people towards Shadowrun for that very reason. I would say it also goes back to the metaplot, though, where it's, you know, the metaplot and the idea of a metaplot is undeniably a strength of Shadowrun and, again, you know, Battletech. But at the same time, it's the nature of a metaplot that for the most part, it's going to be NPCs doing stuff. And at best, when you're writing something in the metaplot, you can try to leave it vague and say, and a group of Shadowrunners also assassinated so-and-so, or rescued so-and-so. But, you know, it's, it's one of the dangers of having this living, evolving history driven by huge corporations and dragons and stuff, uh, that sometimes the PCs are going to feel and are going to be kind of second fiddle. I think it's really well. I think a, a game master for any kind of a game with a meta plot is going to have, and the game group as a whole is going to have to accept the fact that they're going to diverge from it at some point. And you know that's the nature of a role playing game. But the problem there is that because you've got such a strong meta plot and you've made it so much a core of the setting, the people that have diverged from it aren't going to buy the books that come later, or they might not buy the books, or they might be less prone to buy the books because they're going to say, "Oh, well, this isn't relevant to the way our campaign went, so I don't need to buy that." Well, you know, it's that, that actually makes a great segue, though, into the next step of the metaplot, which I thought was extremely good as far as that goes, as far as getting you know, players involved and getting game masters involved. And that was the death of Dunkelzon and his will. Yeah, talk about one of the, taking out one of those big immortal NPCs. They made him president, and then they killed him. <laughs> Blew him up, opened up an astral rift in Washington, D.C. His will ended up leading to uh, the fall of one mega corporation from AAA status to complete dis- completely dissolving Fuchi. Uh, the rise of three others, I believe, ended up making AAA status by the time the dust settled in the corporate war that followed. Uh, I'm not sure you could say the dust has completely settled, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. That is an event that kept going on and on, but I know uh, that's how we got Novatech, that's how we got Cross, and there was one other one that jumped up AAA around that time, Wu, I believe. Wuxing. That's all right. Wuxing. And the thing about the thing about Dunkelzon's will, though, and, and we'll get into this maybe a little bit later, but the thing about Dunkelzon's will as a metaplot function is that it was tailor-made for Shadowrunners to be the agents of change. Yeah, you want to talk about plot hooks that I think it's like 10 or 15 pages in the book and the rest of it's like little stories about the the little ripples that it caused, some of them, that went right after it happened. But it was 15 fucking pages of plot hooks and that's it. it now, was, John, what did you think about it? Uh, I The one big thing I think about it is that it is probably one of the best Gen Con things that any company has ever done. Ooh, in, I'm not familiar with what happened here. So they held the election 
at Gen Con, right? Oh. And they announced the assassination at Gen Con and then put Dunkle Zahn's will up for sale at the con with no pre-solicitation. Wow. Yeah, there there had been... Wow. They, they had uh, inserts that you could mail in for, for the election, and they'd gotten so few that it was pretty much completely decided at Gen Con, from what I've, I've heard. Uh, but it's, it's also an interesting footnote about audience participation, is that the handful of people that did send in the, uh, the mail-in election results, uh, you can spot them in the Dunkle Zane's Whale and, and several other follow-up products. So they were, you know, they were pretty early, I think, in gaming, for going for that wow. level of audience participation and immersion and, you know, fanboy reward system type of stuff. Yeah, that does read, earn my badass seal of approval. Yeah, right if you there. read through the will, every, almost every single entry that says uh, so-and-so will receive a token of my appreciation, that was someone who sent in their vote, and they got a signed certificate from one of the designers. It was a share of stock in one of the AAA megacorps. And uh, I believe... Uh, I believe I can't remember who it was. I want to say it was either Tom Dowd or Mike Mulhaven, uh, signed his uh, Cedar Croup stock as Lothvir. Nice. Yeah. So, that, so, John, you were saying? Oh, I just think that that was you know, a brilliant move. And when you talk about things that shake up the fan base, there were a few things in Shadowrun that have shaken up the fan base that way because it, was, it came as just such a complete and total surprise to everybody at the time. So it was and definitely that. immediately triggered the huge spike in sales for that book. I'd say it was definitely kind of the second big moment. You know, if, if there's a, a general consensus amongst fans that, you know, Universal Brotherhood would maybe be that first kind of shared experience, you know, then, then Dunkel Zane's election and stuff is, is, I'd say, unarguably the second. I would agree with that. It did send a lot of ripples through definitely the online world where I was playing. Uh, it was It was a big deal for that. So, Daryl, what else did you have to say about uh, Metaplot stuff? Well, I was just about to segue. Uh, that, another thing that Dunkelzahnsville... Uh, bleh, now I'm completely doing the German <laughs> thing. Shit. Uh, Dunkelzahnsville... We will now was... talk about Dunkelzahnsville. <laughs> Send your emails, too. <laughs> oh, no, it's a horrible German accent. I apologize. Yeah. Uh, anyway... Uh, one big shift was, like I said, a lot of these metal plot elements up until this point had been, okay, we're going to sprinkle the seed in this book, and then three months later, this one's going to talk about it a little bit in a shadow comment, but you're not going to get any information, and then this one's going to have a little section about it, and then you have a book that talks about it that's like a setting book, like um, there was a lot of uh, talk about what was going on in Aslan for a long time in the books. Then when the source book itself, Aslan, comes out, uh, again, another Nigel Finley, I do believe. Yes, and you and you read it, and it's like, oh hey, what the hell, Jesus! And it's just all this stuff's going on behind the scenes. And when you're reading it, it's like, oh hey, that piece, that that's this piece. And you put the pieces together; they've been sprinkling through, and they had done that a lot up until that point. Then there was a shift in design philosophy, and I want to say I want to blame the internet in a way for it, uh, or at least Usenet at the time, because when you sprinkle hints like that. And everyone's talking about in the game store at the counter, yeah, you can get away with it because they're probably not going to piece it together. But you get a couple of hundred hardcore fans of a game talking about it on Usenet, they're going to figure everything out before the book comes out. 
And then after that point, they started releasing, okay, here's the one big book, and it has the whole event. And it sure, it picks up on plot seats and all your stuff, but like the, the one that comes to mind that was one of the best of that era, in my opinion, uh, was uh, Rinruku Arcology Shut Down. There were little plot seeds here and there, and it picked up a lot of uh, dangling plot hooks from even the first novels with Dodger and um, uh, I can't remember the other, the main Galatea. Sam. No, Sam. Sam yeah, Sam and uh, Sally Sung. Yeah, goes to walks inside. Yeah, but it picked up that meta plot with uh, Dodger and uh, Morgan, uh, which was an AI, and it picked up that little plot. And then it picked up a little plot from here, and it picked up a little plot from there, and then it. But what happened was. Instead of scattering these through several different books, it was all one book, and you're reading through it chronologically about a year's worth of game time for the for the plot that happened. It's like, okay, here's the first reports of what the attack happened. Now we're starting to investigate what's going on. Now we're getting in a little bit deeper. Now, holy shit, what the fuck is this? There's flying drone buzz saws, and the entire thing's like a fucking maze now. And then it starts developing deeper and deeper into it. So you've got basically a... I think there were about 200 page books at this time, 150, 200 pages of just backstory and seeded with plot hooks left and right. But it was all one big event. You could buy the, you could buy the one book and know everything that's going on. You didn't have to buy the three or four books previously, and you didn't have it spoiled for you if you went online and people were speculating. I'd say it was almost like a paradigm shift uh, away from a mystery and into a drama. I guess you know they're, they're still both very good. And they can still tell kind of a similar story, but yeah, there there wasn't that that twist uh, quite as much anymore. I, I kind of wish I'd let you talk first. You just put it a hell of a lot more succinctly than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rusty is is good at that. Part of that was also that Renraku Arcology Shutdown came out under FanPro, as opposed to some of the stuff ah. we talked about earlier, which came out under FASA, and that was a big paradigm shift in the way the books were created. During FASA's era, most books were single author or no more than one to three authors, uh, whereas FanPro was entirely uh, freelancer-based. They didn't have, well, the only employee for them was Rob Boyle in the United States. And so every book was farmed out, and usually it was to a pool of freelancers. So it wasn't as much the fan reaction or the deciphering of the puzzles as it was it was a lot easier for different people to work on different components of things and then assemble them together that's an excellent point john thanks for bringing that up because it is really important to keep in mind who's producing the books as as the as the ip passes through different hands you're going to have different approaches to how you're going to make the game and how the meta plot's going to advance yeah, and I think this is actually a good point to uh, go ahead and take a quick little break because I'm getting a little parched and kind of want to get another round from the bar. Um, so we'll be right back after these messages. Hey, have you heard of The Strange? Hi, I'm Bruce Cordell. The Strange is a role-playing game that supposes that just outside of what we think of as normal Earth, there's an alien data network called The Strange. We're running a Kickstarter right now to fund The Strange. To find it, go to Google and type in The Strange Kickstarter and follow the link provided. The Strange is host to a number of hidden worlds called recursions that player characters travel to and explore. One is a place called Arden, where magic powered by souls and other fabulous sorceries actually work. Bruce and I have designed The Strange to use the same rules engine as Numenera a rules engine we call the Cypher System. 
If you know and like Numenera, you'll like The Strange. This message was brought to you by Monty Cook Games. If you want to know more about The Strange, go to kickstarter.com and search for us there. And we're back with episode 7 of the Gamer's Tavern. Uh, tonight we've got John Dunn and Rusty Zimmerman on with us, and we're talking about Shadowrun. And we, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about like the individual products for the game line. Um, I'd, like to ask, I'd like to ask Rusty, because I asked John first last time. Rusty, uh, what are your favorite source books for Shadowrun? It's always a tricky answer when you're looking at more than 25 years of game material. Uh, and being asked to pick a favorite, um, my default answer uh, is always going to have to be the the old Shearshan Gear source book, because I, I'd say it's probably the one I've gotten the most mileage out of, just as a fan of the setting, uh, and it's probably been the one that I've opened the most when researching for for products of my own that I'm working on. It was uh, a fantastic product. It was a that was a Nigel Finley. Yep. Yes, it was. Uh, I think that was actually one of his passion projects at Shadowrun too, was designing that world. Very much so, uh, and it's it's going back to '92 or '93. Uh, but you know, it's something that's always occurred to me when I take a look at the stuff I write, and not even counting the kind of sequel to the Shearshanger source book. Uh, but you know, even other stuff, just the fiction that I like, the characters I enjoy, the NPCs I script together. You know, it's it's always been a, a major kind of seminal work, cornerstone of the setting to me, uh, and as I interpret the setting. Absolutely. I mean, it was it was basically uh, it was basically just a great book, not only to tell you about you know the Elven community up there in Oregon, but also you know it really helped establish a lot of the background and a lot of the you know big movers and shakers. Um, but even more than that, I think the thing I loved about the Shirshengir um, source book is it introduced all these really great little hooks for your character to do, little organizations to belong to, you know, like the the ghosts or the uh, the black daggers. I mean, there were always little, you know, fun little things you could use as your background for a Shadowrunner. You know, maybe you were a paladin, maybe you were, you know, just all these little neat ideas uh, for for character creation. Yeah, and it's it's certainly something that. It was also the sort of in-depth source book that I think added to everything we've said has been strengths of Shadowrun with the meta plot and the advancing timeline and the recurring NPCs and the variety of plots available. You know, I mean, it's a book that's got like 20 pages of society in this country that's popped up around Oregon. And, you know, that's, that's more than you'll find on elven culture in a D&D book at the time. You know, uh, it just got so in-depth, and it mixed the fantasy with the high-tech, uh, with the meta-plot, and, and all the rest. And, and it's just, to me, like, you know, just kind of the the archetypical, awesome, uh, old-school Shadowrun book. It's a really good one. It's one of Daryl's favorites, as a matter of fact. Yeah, uh, every time I'm asked the question of, what's your favorite sh- source book, or more commonly on uh, all the forums, is, uh, what must-have older books should I get? And I'm like, okay, well, I'd have to say my favorite is, without a doubt, Universal Brotherhood. Um, except for maybe Shershengeyer, or uh, Aslan, or, or uh, Portfolio of a Dragon, or, or, or oh, and, uh, um, um, and I just go on and on. It's really hard to pick a favorite, because there are yeah. so many awesome books, and there are still awesome books coming out for the series too, which is something that's, I mean, there was a little bit of a 
lull for a time when there weren't a lot of it was mostly crunchy rules books which i'm not as big of a fan of a lot of these books i don't even necessarily use the game information because they're so out of date but i still pull them off the shelf and read them because they're good fiction i think you know it's fair to say we're all big fans of shadowrun but i think it's also accurate to say that there have been supplements and source books that have been a variable quality um, and there are some that are just not very good, and there are some that are fantastic. So, well, and that goes back to the very, very earliest days. I mean, uh, the Native American Nations source books now are kind of infamous, and yeah. those were Finleys. Yeah, well, the Native American Nations. Yeah, I mean, it's it was a thing that they were trying to really bring out in uh, in Shadowrun. It was that the Native Americans had come back with a vengeance. You know, they were sort of the the unofficial you know rulers of of North America in a lot of ways, and I think that's sadly uh, a part of Shadowrun that's really been kind of left by the wayside over the last 20-some-odd years. They've kind of really moved away from that. And you're right, the Native American Nation books were were not nearly as good as some of the other projects. And, you know, you know, Nigel's entitled to, you know, some, some duds. Everybody sure. has an off day. Yeah. Everybody rolls one. So, John, what's your favorite source book? So I'd actually go in a very different direction than you guys just went uh, on my favorites because... Definitely my favorite book in the Shadowrun line from before I worked on it is Paranormal Animals of North America. Oh, I love that one. Some of the best and, comment sections from yeah, a Shadowrun I, book. Yeah, I thought the comments were incredibly evocative, and I thought the artwork was incredibly evocative. I mean, admittedly, most of it was black and white, which was the norm for the era, but uh, I found them to be very powerful illustrations. And I also I loved, loved how many Shadowrunners like to talk about how good eaten a lot of those critters were. <laughs> I also love the fact that there was that handy scale model for mm-hmm. all the creatures where you had the one outline of uh, the ex-company man there standing next to them to see how big the creatures were. I thought that was extremely useful. I miss the days of Shadowrun where you had, you know, starting with the Street Samurai's catalog, you had a piece of specialist art created for every page or every page spread. I thought that was incredibly evocative. It's I mean, the, something it's not that possible they've anymore, been trying but. to go back towards, but... Mostly, it's been in, in smaller ebook products because you don't have the page restrictions. Yeah, and just going back to the kind of book by committee thing that we mentioned earlier, there's a difference between having you know six or eight full time guys in house and having you know a couple dozen freelancers because that includes artists. You lose some of the kind of cohesion or the the consistency of a, of a vision. Uh, you know, and I think that's just something that's changed over the years. Uh, and in order to support that amount of artwork in a book, you need sales numbers that haven't existed in many years, too. Well, I'm I'm kind of like Daryl and Russell. I mean, there's so many books, it's hard for me to pick a favorite. But if I just had to absolutely select one that was absolutely my favorite, I think probably I would say Fields of Fire. And I love Fields of Fire because it established in my mind like this is the book you show people when you want to talk about the mirror shade style of Shadowrun because the uh, the in character voice of Fields of Fire Matador is the ultimate professional and he goes on at length about what that means and it was not just like your typical gearbook i mean the Street Samurai's catalog was was a fantastic product as well and it was great about you know establishing that immersive feel with all the uh, 
you know, comments from the various deckers. And Fields of Fire did the same thing, but it also, to my mind, also really kind of said, here is a way to play Shadowrun that is maybe a little different than the way you have been doing it before. Because you're playing, if you ran a campaign off that, you were playing mercenaries, like literal go out in the jungle or the desert mercenaries. Well, you could, you could play Shadowrunners and just take that approach that Matador was, was proposing, which was the very highly professional uh, Mirror Shades style. I, I, that's that's what I feel. And I gotta say, you actually just before you said that, I was gonna say another book that I really, really, really love. And if I had to pick one favorite right now, this moment, it would be uh, <laughs> just one. Well, no. And what about that one? And anyway, Cyber Technology was an amazing product that came out. I believe that was toward the end of the second edition cycle, and it was. It was another gear book like all the others, but it was written from a perspective of uh, Hatchet Man, which was one of these NPCs that had been in Shadowrun for pretty much since the start of the game. He was commenting in the very first Street Samurai catalog, which was one of like the first couple books that came out for Shadowrun. And this is a character you've seen in the comment threads all the way through. And, and then they take this character that was just posts on a message board and give him a voice and a character, and it really kind of dives into... Because a lot of people who play Street Samurai characters in Shadowrun tend to go for very, I am the man with no name, I have no backgrounds, I ran away from home, uh, I have no past, I have no family, I have no friends, I'm just a lone warrior. And what this did was, it really gave away, it was a lot like the way fighters in D&D are, they kind of bland and boring because they were the combat guy, but in cyber technology, it really gave personality to these characters. He talked about how he got his first set of cyber eyes. And this was one of the moments that I absolutely fell in love with this book. He talks about the moment he gets his first cyber eyes, and once they're put in, doing things that were nasty or mean or cruel or torturous even, became a lot easier because through the cyber eyes, even though his vision was actually better with them, it felt less like he was watching reality and more like he was looking through a camera. So it gave him some distance from it. And uh, think classic disassociation effect exactly yeah, and i loved i i daryl that you absolutely nailed that that is the most memorable part of that book for me is that exact part where he talks about how the cyberware was affecting him and specifically the eyes and how it changed his view of the world and you're right i mean that is absolutely what makes that book pop is hatchman's description of what was going on and another part of that that i thought was really cool was they talked about phantom limb syndrome with cyber arms because sure, you've got the cybernetic arm, but it's not your real... And they start getting metaphysical with it, with the magic aspect. It's Maybe it's your aura trying to remember them. Because they were talking about how when he'd look away, he might look down thinking his arm was in one position, it's in a completely different position, which is phantom limb syndrome for people who, in real life, people who have amputations have that happen where they can still feel the leg or the arm. And I thought that was just a completely brilliant thing to add to the game, to add to the fiction to add to you can bring that into your character to give them depth yeah i agree and do you guys have anything else you want to say about source books because there's there's we have actually a really good segue to move into the next i, thing. I think there's one real important one that i would like to mention and that's shadow tech uh, i found oh, that yeah. to be an extremely transformative book when it came out because that was the one that introduced bioware absolutely and in the first edition era and up to that point you know when you were creating your character you were just focused on okay what cyberware am i going to put in how am i going to leverage that essence and in much the same way that universal brotherhood was a slap in the face to the setting uh shadow tech introducing bioware was a slap in the face to everybody that was ever 
playing a street samurai, a low essence character, because it just woke you up and went, wow, now I've got this whole other game subsystem that I'm going to use when I'm creating a character. And I thought that was a great way to reinvigorate the game. And I thought it was also a really well-crafted book in that the biology involved in it was well thought out, well researched, yes. and you know, fairly reasonable. Yeah, it was written by, if I'm not mistaken, Carl like an Lee. actual biologist. Uh, MD. I think it was also important because it it reinforced the notion of street samurais having to stay on the cutting edge and, and having to stay state-of-the-art because if you were a street sam and you didn't dip into Bioware, you were behind the curve and that meant you were going to die. Right, you know, it, it kind of reinforced the in-universe notions. Walking and that razor's edge. Yeah. And from a metagame perspective, it also had that effect on the players. Right. So the players who were playing Street Samurais were going out and buying the book because they needed to have that book in order to keep up with the other players. And, you know, this was in an era where splat books just weren't that common. Yeah. This was kind of a new idea, and it really obviously had some repercussions. Yeah. Bioware was the first prestige class. Exactly. <laughs> Someone's well, thinking of enhanced articulation. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. You know, I, I met a guy one time. This is just a great story. I met a guy one time who, just after this book came out, you know, he, had, he was optimizing his character, and he was um, a face. And in this edition of the game, when you were facing with people, you were rolling your negotiation skill. And uh, he, had, he was telling me about his character and all the things that Bioware was allowing him to do with, with his concept. And he mentioned, yeah, and I took a reflex recorder for negotiation. I said, wait, mm-hmm. does, that mean you, does that mean you reflexively negotiate? If I, if I aim a gun at you, here's your first, inst- first thing you're going to do is say, let's make a deal? I think that's kind of interesting. <laughs> you know, it, it was funny, but it's also interesting. I mean, if, that, if that's how it actually worked, it would have been uh, kind of cool. But, um, you know, they did, you know, ultimately change, uh, clarify that uh, enhanced articulation and uh, reflex recorders could only be used for... Um, active skills, you know, things you did with your body as opposed to your social skills. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Reflex Recorder with Negotiation, that was, that's, a, that's a great story. <laughs> so, the thing I wanted to, to mention is, we, you know, we talked briefly about, like, um, the idea of mirror shades, or what's also called Black Trench Coat, and I'm, uh, I'm kind of skipping down several bullets on the list to get to yeah. this, but um, Daryl and I talked about it briefly when, uh, in Episode Zero, and I've talked about the difference between these two styles a little bit on my own blog, um, but there is two different styles of Shadowrun that, that are, I mean, there's multiple styles of Shadowrun, but there's two sp- specific styles that a lot of people tend to gravitate towards, and uh, those being Pink Mohawk, which is very over-the-top action, um, you know, rule of cool, and Black Trenchcoat or Mirror Shades, which is the more uh, leverage style, you know, a lot, lot more realistic, a lot more involved with planning. A lot more legwork, a lot more yeah, con investigation. Games. So, so th- there's there's nothing wrong with either one. They're both entirely valid ways to play the game. Um, but it's interesting that they have names and they have grown into these particular uh, sort of sub-genres. Um, and I know that Daryl and I both have our favorites, but um, John, uh, what is your favorite way to play, play or run Shadowrun? And uh, honestly, I am comfortable with both styles, and I like to tailor the campaign to the group because, in my mind, that's really the more important element because I think once you've got your game group in place, you can play pretty much anything, but knowing what they're going to key off of is way more important than trying to set a tone for everything. No, that's a great so, answer. 
I mean, I, I try to be more flexible. Thanks. Well, let me ask the question a different way. Do you have a great story you can tell us about either one of those styles? Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, <laughs> I've run many, many games at conventions, so I have no small number of different Shadowrun <laughs> tales. Uh, and I think, really, the most interesting tales from the two different styles is when they conflict, when you've got the game master saying, without making it clear that I'm going to be, or thinking that he's going to be running one particular style of play, and then having the characters show up and try and do the exact opposite. You know, when the adventure is planned to take place where they're going to be going up a bunch of gangers, up against a bunch of gangers, and really there's no way to negotiate around it. It's going to be just a brutal, you know, conflict with you know, massive explosions and fast action, and the one guy sitting there at the table going, but, but I have a face. I was going to talk through this. <laughs> I actually um, had I actually talked about that exact opposite problem back in episode three, which is our gaming horror stories, where I kind of ruined a game because I was trying to run black trench coat for a bunch of people who wanted to throw throw C twelve at walls and blow absolutely. up buildings. Well, I played a game very recently, actually, with a good friend of mine named Brandon, and when he got us all together, he was to run the game, um, you know, we discussed this very issue of, you know, Black Trenchcoat versus Pink Mohawk, and much like John, uh, to his credit, Brandon said, well, it's going to, you know, basically depend on what the group wants to do. So we all got together that day, and we brought out our characters, and uh, he asked me, like, Ross, what did you bring to the table? And I said, well, I am playing a pixie social slash physical adept who is a <laughs> professional cage fighter, Muay Thai fighter in her <laughs> spare time, and he says, you're 18 inches tall... And you're a professional Muay Thai fighter. I said, yes. He said, this is clearly a Pink Mohawk campaign. (laughs) (laughs) And it was. And it was fantastic. And uh, the name of our Shadowrun group was the Captains of Crunch. Um, And I actually have a post about this on my my blog as well. But uh, we we ended up with a a fantastic group. We had a lot of fun. It was all Pink Mohawk all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I enjoyed the hell out of it. So... Uh, that's my story, but um, Rusty, what about you? Um, I tend to lately, I, the older I've gotten and the more mature and wise and all that, to completely just go mohawk. Um, because, <laughs> and and I, I largely blame it on writing some missions uh, in that these the, the half dozen or so missions adventures I've written, I'm always acutely aware of the fact that th- these people have four hours to run a game. And that includes meeting at the table with six or seven strangers, some of which may never have played the game before, some of which are learning the rules, and this, that, and the other. And and I always kind of feel like at a convention, the default should be that people aren't going to have time or the knowledge, and maybe not the inclination, to sit and, and kind of overthink it and plan stuff out. Um, and, you know, it might be somebody that's, that's never played a role-playing game before, much less Shadowrun. Uh, quick, um, quick, quick, so, quick question, Rusty. Did you yeah. happen to work on the New York season of missions? No, I did not. Uh, I actually just got in with missions a couple years back. I was going to say, I, I played that when I figured... I figured it might have been yours because the first mission we ran when we went through it in our home campaign was blowing mm-hmm. up the fucking Brooklyn Bridge. Yes. Uh, I, I yeah, played I through the New that. York season. Uh, but no, the, the first one I wrote was uh, Ancient Pawns, uh, and I'm I'm so Mohawk that the first adventure I wrote was about the Ancients, the all-elven <laughs> Go Gang with giant green Mohawks. Yeah. 
Uh, and and it, I can I can say that from Sprawlgangers, uh, yes, they have Mohawk. There are characters oh, yeah. in Sprawlgangers with Mohawks. If you buy the models for that game when they eventually come out, they will be yeah. guys with Mohawks for real. Uh, but you know, I, I just kind of default to screw it, have fun. Uh, you know, and, and with the adventures that I wrote, I'm thinking we're trying to hook people on the game, and even if not, even if we've got the most jaded, cynical, professional, ice-cold, running-through-their-veins, you know, Robert De Niro guy out there, every now and then they probably want to let their hair down and have fun and kung fu fight on top of a moving pickup truck, or <laughs> a moving semi-truck, or, you know, jump out of a helicopter and fight a bunch of drones while they parachute to the ground, or, or you know, whatever. Uh, and it's, I think it's just important to remember that games are supposed to be fun. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I know there's nothing wrong with the more mirror shade style. Uh, I, I've played my share of cold, cool professionals uh, and all that stuff, but, you know, I think writing for the convention's mindset, I said, you know, I didn't want the adventures to fall into grimdark uh, and I didn't want them to turn into boring planning sessions if somebody just wanted to roll a handful of dice and shoot somebody in the face. You know, uh, I think they worked out uh, different strokes for different folks, but I think the older I get, the more I default to roll dice and be awesome. You know, it's kind of, in my mind, it's almost like the, the Saints Row version. The Saints Row 3-4 version of Shadowrun is the Pink Mohawk, you know? That's a good way yeah, I can point to it's and um, the, the Grand Theft Auto Saints Row split. I gotta, I gotta just step in here for a minute, and, and I'm gonna do the 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 ultimate crime. Let me tell you about my character. <laughs> um, so I kind of got all the mo the mirror shades. I talked about my Mohawk character. I got all my mirror shades uh, out of my system playing online. I played for like two years the same character, and this guy was like the leader of his own Shadowrun group, and and we were extremely you know professional. We had all the you know, we had, you know, battle sign language and we had, you know, encrypted radios and all of our, our, our stuff was, you know, silencer and, and, and it was really fun in that, in the online environment, uh, people were much more patient and you could, uh, you could sort of role play your way through things like planning sessions where it was actually really fun and exciting and interesting. Well, I wouldn't, I won't say exciting, but it was interesting. <laughs> And uh, I, I got a huge kick out of that to the to the point where um, I had several Mohawk GMs of the uh, online game say, "You guys are uh, not as much fun to, to GM for as the other groups <laughs> because you know we were just we were just not saying anything. We were not doing any snappy banter with the bad guys. We would just sort of you know silently ghost in, you know, kill everyone and get out." Um, and uh, after a couple of years of playing that, I, I kind of got it all out of my system, and, and I actually achieved the uh, the ultimate goal, I think, of any Shadowrunner. I got that one million new yen run uh, to save uh, the head guy of uh, uh, Knight Errant uh, from a, from a Knight. thing. Uh, no, uh, Roger Soaring Owl, actually. Oh, okay. And uh, so got buried. Yeah, and uh, got him uh, got him out of some trouble and got my million new yen and retired. <laughs> So that that got all the mirror shades out of my system for a while, um, but before that, I had been playing all all kinds of uh, Mohawk, just Mohawk all, Mohawk all the time, and uh, you know I thought it was time for a change, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it while I played it, and after I got done, I was kind of like, you know, that was really cool, but now it's time I want to do some some other things, and you know, so I see both sides of it. I see that there's 
there's value to both approaches. And I think any term, any long-term Shadowrun player is they're going to have a preference for one or the other, but they're going to enjoy playing both. I am the complete opposite of the three of you in that I did my pink mohawk days when I was a kid. Uh, I'd say kid, teenager, early 20s. Now I really, really love the black trench coat, mirror shades, sort of... I really revel in the planning aspects of everything and the professionalism and being cool and calm and collected. And you can still work in those fun pink mohawky moments when plan F goes wrong. And that's like, okay, let's go to plan G. What's plan G? Well, the last plan failed, so now we're at, oh, fuck. <laughs> well, I think, I think though, that, you know, there are certain things that people bring to the table, you know, as a character concept even. And you can say, well... That's just not going to fit for a Mirror Shade style, or that's just not going to fit for a Pink Mohawk style. Well, and like, I, I think it's it's also important to note that in, in some ways it's it, it's not like you have to pick one or the other. No, you know, they're it's, not it's mutually at exclusive. at most a sliding scale, you know, uh, and I guess I would describe myself as Mirror Shades and a Mohawk, you know, in that it's, it just depends on the situation and the mood that your gamers are in that night. And, you know, what they're out to accomplish and everything else. That's, you know, the, the most important thing is just that everybody's on the same page. You know, like I said, you don't want to throw a curveball to the GM or vice versa. But yeah, it's just personal preference. Maybe it just comes down to what was the last movie you watched. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it can be influenced by almost anything. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that's, that's great. And, um, do we have anything else we want to say about the, these individuals and, and distinct styles? I think one of the reasons why Pink Mohawk is such a popular style, especially, and this may just be me when I was first starting out playing the game, the first adventure you would run in the early editions of the game was called Food Fight, which was the entire setup for the adventure is you go into a stuffer shack, which is kind of like a 7-Eleven, and you're picking up your munchies, and of course you're wearing your body armor and all carrying all your weapons because it's Shadowrun. And this gang comes in and tries to, kicks in the door and tries to rob the place and you get into a big gunfight and uh, there's even a random table you can roll with three different adjectives to describe what get what breaks or falls down when your shot misses and you hit a shelf. So you roll 3d6 and it's like a red gushy jar shatters and splatters everywhere. So that really cements it down in the game, but then you get Another really early, in, in my opinion, one of the best adventures, which is Harlequin, had a real combination of both of those. The very first adventure, and I know we talked about the character Harlequin. You can even strip out the Harlequin element of it and put pretty much anyone in that place and do the same sort of string of adventures. Or you can pull the adventures out themselves and run them independently for the most part. But one of the things that grew, that little super adventure which is like it was like i think seven different adventures in one big book and the very first one of them you're told up front you need to prove that you're a professional that you can get in and get out quietly that you can go non-lethal that you don't need to blow everything up to accomplish your goal and then four adventures later you're on a train shooting out with orc god guards from a troll prince in the middle of germany with grenade launchers so it does it, sound like fun. Yeah, that's that that part of the adventure is a blast to run, let me tell you. But it really highlighted how even early on these two playstyles were really emerging in the adventures and you had some really really well-written adventures for the game. So I I just talked about my favorite one Harlequin. I was wondering if you guys had any favorites that you've run or played? 
I can't tell you how many times I have run uni- uh, Missing Blood from Universal Brotherhood. I, I love that adventure to death. Ditto. Uh, for, for most of my gaming career, I was much more likely to play than to run. Or, or at most, like on Shadowland.org, we would do kind of a round robin uh, where we would take turns running and, and stuff. But lately, uh, for some reason, my local gaming group expects me to run games uh, instead of anybody wanting to GM Shadowrun for me, uh, you know, and run me <laughs> through the adventures I wrote or whatever. Uh, so lately I've done an awful lot more GMing. For my personal favorite adventure, I just have to go back to kind of my first couple of Bottled Demon and Elven Fire. Um, again, I think just because they were so seminal to me in, in shaping the universe and what I expected of NPCs and intro fiction and badass elves in leather jackets and, you know, just all that stuff that really wowed 14-year-old Rusty and, and made him fall in love with the setting. You know, I think we may have done a disservice by not mentioning in the uh, sourcebook section um, the Awakenings sourcebook, because that was by Steve Kenson. And oh, it's yeah. where he kind of, he really kind of did his best to define how magic worked in Shadowrun. And it was just a beautiful book about how, you know, the different, all these different ways to use magic, and they're all basically, they're all valid. It can be, you know, you can your character, if you want to play him as a Jedi, you can do that. If your character, you know, channels magic through, you know, uh, Catholic uh, they prayer, actually, they actually, I believe, that. I believe they heavily imply in that book that one kid had a magical tradition based off, quote, an old two-dimension cartoon series heavily implying that the kid used magic like Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, and I think that directly fed into, for better or worse, um, the... Uh, the kind of combination, this universal magical doctrine that was adopted in 4th and 5th edition. UMT. Yeah, where, uh, or universal magic theory, sorry. Yep. Um, you know, where it became, if, if you believe it works, it works. And because of that, they kind of homogenized some of the rules. Uh, but yeah, Awakenings and then Magic in the Shadows kind of follow up to it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and if you want to go all the way know, back to Paul Hume's, uh, Paul Hume's uh, Grimoire. Yeah. Back in the going first going back edition. another edition or two. Yeah, n- you know, now, yeah, they've all been great. No slight on Paul Hume, because he is a, an excellent author, but um, I would have to give the credit to the UMT and how, and, and particularly just you know how magic works. I think Steve Kenson really earned that. Yeah, Steve Kenson, as, Steve Kenson knocked out of the park on that one. I yeah. was just saying that, like I said, it was another one of those books when you, got, when you first got Grimoire. It really opened up the world. It added this idea of initiation. It added lots more options, uh, metamagics, and things like that. And it's just like, oh, hey, this magical system that we wrote, that's just your starting point. Now we're going to build on that and make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And then Kinson came in and said, okay, this is actually how big it is. It's yeah. anything you can imagine. You know, and I think just briefly I'd want to touch on maybe a couple of source books that I think didn't work really well. <laughs> and again, I'm you know coming at it from the viewpoint of someone who loves Shadowrun, and I love it to death. Um, but I think there's a couple of source books that I know never made it to my table and probably will, probably never ever will make it to my table. I'm just going to um, say I'm going to bow out of this particular discussion most likely because uh, my reactions to some of these 
books that I don't like from Shadowrun get very, very, very angry, as I think Rusty knows. If he, rem- uh, if he, re- if he un- recognize, if he can connect me to my dump shock name, uh, unpleasant gamers on the internet <laughs> say it ain't so. Yeah, really nerd drama. I'm, I'm trying to be very clinical, you know, and I'm going to try and explain, you know, why I'm, I'm, and that's why I'm buying out. I just care can't. About it. I'm too emotional. <laughs> but um, well, and I think before you go on, you should say. What works for some groups will not work yes. for others. I mean, yes. a lot of people rave about Shadowbeat. It was useless for me. And, you know, that's a very good point, because I, I am a big fan of Shadowbeat. So, yeah, absolutely. Your, your mileage may vary. Well, and just and because I don't like it, but, I, you know, I, I, I think I have a valid reasons for explaining why I don't think it works, but it, it's, it is definitely, you know, if, if you think you would like this book, there's no reason why it can't work for you. Exactly. As a second caveat, I think it's also important to note that you know, again, a lot of these books we're talking about were written by six or eight people, so maybe you love a chapter or two and could take or leave the rest of it. And well, for me, Shadowbeat, which you mentioned, is kind of my go-to example of that. Well, There's yeah. a few chapters of Shadowbeat I love, and the rest of it I, I could, you know, burn for all I care. And, <laughs> you know, the parts of Shadowbeat I like alone would still be a favorite source book of mine. Well, I don't want to associate Shadowbeat too strongly with this particular section, but um, <laughs> the books the books I'm about to mention, um, I feel confident in saying are are not very are are not particularly useful for my particular approach in toto, not not any particular piece, but in toto. And uh, the first one I want to mention is Way of the Comet, or Year of the Comet. Oh, I loved that book. What was wrong with that? <laughs> really? Likewise, yes. I love that one. The, the chapter with the zombies, the Shidem, it was well, basically written like a zombie movie. That was fucking brilliant. Yeah, I can see. Well, clearly, you know, we disagree on some <laughs> things. Uh, I thought Year of the Comet was, it was a meta plot thing like we talked about before. It was, it was meant to be a, you know, event, a big event. But for me, it just, there was just nothing about that book that really worked as far as something I wanted to, to bring into my campaign. Uh, interesting uh, side note there. That was the first fan pro book. That it was started under FASA and FanPro finished it, and so that was really one of the big instances of a whole lot of freelancers. If you look at the list of people that worked on that, I believe it's longer than uh, pretty much any other Shadowrun book. And I mean, you know, I mean no disrespect to any freelancer, and I'm not trying to slam anybody personally. I'm just saying, you know, for me, that particular book just just really does not work as a Shadowrun product. Um, and the second one is is a little more recent. Um, the second one being War. Uh, which yeah, is I don't, sort I don't of infamous. Find many disagreements. Go ahead, Rusty. I just say I, I don't. I don't think you have to worry about that being a terribly controversial <laughs> statement. Okay, um, good. Then I'm going to jump in and say, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, same thing with Year of the Comic. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, but but even more so, and and for similar reasons. Uh, I think you'll see that it's not a coincidence that both of them are. You know, like John mentioned with Year of the Comet. In both instances, they were products that were the first ones written uh, by a new line developer or a new company right. or a new batch of freelancers or picking up pieces of someone else's meta plot or finishing someone else's chapter or all of the above. Right. Well, I'm just um, saying, I think if we're, if we're going to talk about Shadowrun's triumphs, we should also talk about some of their setbacks. And, you know, just to offer a little bit of balance on that, I mean, those are the two products I would say... Uh, that, in my opinion, are setbacks for the line. You know, it's definitely something that won't be a surprise to anyone who is familiar with Shadowrun or the online Shadowrun community. 
Um, you know, there's there's books that have been highs, and there's books that have been lows. Um, and it's been 26 years, so you're going to have a lot of both. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody's. I don't think. I don't think we're expecting perfection out of anybody. But you know, it's it's just. I think you know, if we're, if we're talking about Shadowrun, it's fair to our listeners if if we if we go into you know some detail about you know, things, some of the things we love. You know, part of the reason why you you love the game so much is because you do think about it very critically. You think about it very deeply. You think about you know the things that you really really like about it. And sometimes that requires some contrast. Oh yeah. I think another issue that War had, or has, I guess, depending on how you look at it, uh, is that it was also among the first of the new books, and maybe the first new book, with a little bit different format. Uh, something that was touched on a little earlier with Daryl in a passing comment was the, the way some books are fluff and some books are crunch. And we've all talked about how some books are setting books, and how some of them are full of source material with, you know, an adventure plotline or, or gear, War was one of the first that tried to be a little bit of everything. So uh, on top of several other issues in terms of who was working on it, who started working on it, as opposed to who finished working on it, it was also their first attempt at kind of mixing, you know, half of a location book with Bogota with half of a general book discussing militaries in the Sixth World with part of a gear book, with optional rules for military stuff, with half a, you know, this kind of mishmash where they tried to put in something for everybody. So on top of some other issues with war, there were some clashing expectations, which certainly exacerbated the, the disliking of the product, I think. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go go out on a limb and say it's not just, I mean, it's not that I dislike the product, it's that I think it was actually a setback. I, I think it was just a subpar. It's not that I don't like it, it's, it's that I think it wasn't very good. <laughs> so, you know, it's nothing, nothing personal against it at all. Um, but from a, from a clinical standpoint, from, from like my understanding of, you know, what makes a, a book good, it just didn't really match up to those, as you say, those expectations. You know, maybe that's enough to talk about, you know, just a few of, of the setbacks, because we have covered the triumphs. <laughs> maybe we should, you know, move on and look at, you know, we, you, you had a really good point. It's over 26 years. And so if you look at the line as a whole, I don't think you can argue that Shadowrun was extremely successful at almost everything it tried. It, it grew from, you know, just, just basically that one book back in 1989, and now I would say it's definitely a juggernaut of, you know, the gaming industry in terms of if you ask a gamer, especially a longtime gamer, you, you know, if they're aware of Shadowrun, the answer is almost always going to be yes. And if you ask them, have you played it, the answer is, again, almost always going to be yes. Um, and you, you have to, I think, given the, the challenges that they've gone through with the different companies and the different hands that has passed through and the different um, you know, issues that have arisen all around uh, this property, uh, it, it has been undeniably a, a major factor in gaming over the last 26 years. And I think that's a huge accomplishment. It, it's even so saturated gaming or gaming culture that one specific aspect of the game uh, and I just want to touch on this real quick a decking or hacking in 4th edition uh, has taken on a life of its own even people who don't play or have only played once or twice know about the decking rules in Shadowrun and how decking's worked and how it's changed over the years and there are 
millions of words online talking about the quote decking problem unquote which is okay he's gonna hack the system now you guys go for the pizza run and be back in about an hour yeah well originally it was kind of like a dungeon crawl because the the way the system was set up had its little you know it was almost like a a series of sub encounters but only for one player at the table yeah the, the decker was kind of a party thief Except that picking locks took like forty-five rolls. Well, and it wasn't, and he had he went on a little mini adventure. Yeah, right. I mean, it was. It's <laughs> like if if in D and D, the the party thief shrunk down to miniature size and climbed inside of every locked door, and then had to fight like four bad guys, and then came back to real size and the door popped open. You know, it, it was one <laughs> of the, uh, you know, the the great speed bumps in gaming. Uh, I think traditionally, uh, I'd say there's been more GMs that have run NPCs deckers than any other archetype by far. I'd, as much as I actually love decking, I've played every single iteration of the decking rules, except for I've, I've only fiddled a little bit with fifth edition. But uh, all all four major iter- the, the way I look at it, there's four iterations of the decking rules: the dungeon crawl from first edition and second edition, uh, the security sheaf that was introduced in Virtual Realities 2.0 at the end of 2nd edition that carried over into the 3rd edition, uh, and what I, I don't, the hacking version of the rules from 4th edition, and then we've got what I, what, I haven't seen a name for it consistently online, so I, I've been calling it the God version, the Grid Overwatch division, which is the new, more secured wireless matrix from 5th edition. And in each iteration, I love all of them, I love playing all of them, and I have now completely forgot my original point when I started explaining <laughs> this. Um, well, decking is, is a neat concept. I think the, the, it's really cool that they, they tried very hard to, to mechanicize it in, in the various editions of Shadowrun because it's a, it's a really great idea. The execution of that idea, I think, is, is where you can raise a lot of questions. Um, and actually, this is something I'd like to pitch to John is like, you know, what are some of the things that you've seen or, or how have you handled decking with your games? So one of the big things with the move to fourth edition was trying to integrate decking so that it wouldn't be that pizza run. Right. To, that was why they went with the wireless matrix. Initially, the whole idea there was the decker has to be on hand, that they have to be interacting with things. And there were it was. In my opinion, especially in retrospect, not as well executed as people had hoped it would be. Um, but gosh darn it, they tried. Yeah, yeah, they tried. Um, and the other element of that is also that when you're looking at decking, you need to do a breakdown and consider the story elements and the game world as opposed to what people actually know about computers because that's always going to be a big contrast because you're going to be looking at going well that doesn't work on a computer because you know this cable does this and this protocol does this and well this shouldn't work that way and especially hey, when you got you, a player whose day job is a system admin which seems to be about 80% of Shadowrun players really. <laughs> and they never play the fucking out. decker ever never um, and so that's that's a big problem right because at the end of the day Doing that kind of computer maintenance, that's not fun. Not not for the length of a role-playing game session. So you got to try and, you know, reach a compromise between what's going to be fun, what's going to be compelling, what could have a neat game mechanic, but isn't going to take all day. You know, I had a thought about this. I wonder if there isn't a way to harness current technology to maybe help out with this issue. And 
you know, if you have a process that's very highly mechanical and requires a lot of roles and things like that, I wonder if you couldn't just make like an iPhone app that basically so, you put in, you know, what you need to accomplish and, you know, just let, let it run all the math in the background for you. So those people have been working on those kinds of things at least since my Commodore 64 days. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so no, I've got, I've got on my old hard drive, which is now on my Linux box, I've got five different decking simulation programs and not a single one of them were as I like I said I I love the decking rules so I know them none of those programs are as fast as me just rolling going through them except for the first edition one that was the only one that was faster I I think that the problem is, is that at the same time that people want decking to be streamlined and simple enough to not hold up the game there's another group of people or maybe even the same ones that want decking to be involved and in-depth enough to appeal to someone whose entire character concept is deck. So you've got whole chapters of combat rules for the street salmons. You've got whole chapters on magic and the astral plane for, for mages. And I think there's always been this desire from the earliest days to have that same level of immersion and, and fun specifically for deckers. And I think that's just really tricky to do that when nobody else can help. You know, you can't drag your buddies into the Matrix to help you out. You, you can't, you know, uh, a Decker can always pop off a few shots in a gunfight and help out the Street Samurai. But once the Decker jacks in, his buddies are helpless. You know, uh, there's nothing they can do. There's no way for them to be involved. So either the Decker's entire niche is rolling dice two or three times and feeling dissatisfied, or the Decker's job is killing 45 minutes while everybody else goes and gets pizza. And it's a every issue of, of participation. Shattering. You're talking about participation, yeah. and you're talking about you know niche protection, and you're talking about like how much spotlight time you can give to you know an, an individual type of thing. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's like, for me, I, I take it back to, you know, kind of like if you break down a D&D party and you say, well, if I'm playing a bard and, who's basically a face, right? I'm, I'm really good at social, right, interaction. And if we're doing an adventure that's a dungeon crawl, well, you know, I should not expect to have a lot of spotlight time because there's not a lot of things to talk to in a dungeon, typically, typically. But, but um, then that feeds back into the wireless matrix with the deckers and hackers now being kind of a buff and a debuff which is arguably the great flame war of Ot 13 with SR5 <laughs> hitting shells, is this interpretation of, of the wireless matrix, which tried to continue with you know what John mentioned with SR4's initial wireless, trying to drag the Decker along and keep them involved real time. You know, I, that's exactly what SR5's iteration of the matrix tried to build on. And now, you know, since you mentioned the Bard, it's kind of the same thing. Well, you I'm know, kind of curious. To... I, I got to say, I, I got to see. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to look up and see what the Dump Shock community says after this episode airs and they, and they hear it. So, because <laughs> you're, you're right. I mean, they are a very, uh, very vocal and, community. And there's one, there's one thing I got to say. When you watch the different edition, the different, I say edition, the different four different rule sets, four decking, you can see each one specifically tried to solve a problem. Security Chief tried specifically to speed up, speed up, speed up, speed up. Because you know, Dungeon Crawl took forever, because you had to go to each individual node to find what you wanted. Uh, Comlinks, 4th uh, edition, the hacking, 
really tried to get the get the Decker more involved and integrated in the party. And then you have on that the Grid Overwatch, which was really trying to integrate the decking mechanics into using the same style of mechanics that the rest of the game used. So each yeah. one of those tried to solve a specific problem, and every single time they succeeded, but there were also drawbacks as well. Well, gentlemen, um, unfortunately our time in the tavern is coming to an end. The uh, barkeep is signaling me for last call. And uh, I just wanted to ask you first if you had anything further you wanted to comment on regarding Shadowrun, and then second of all, to let our listeners know where we can find you on the internet and what you're up to these days. Uh, John, you want to go first since you've got seniority? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure about I'm not sure uh, how good I feel about having seniority, but uh, so my primary uh, writing work lately has been a lot of freelancing for Fantasy Flight games and on the Warhammer 40k lines and also a little bit on the Star Wars line and then again uh, working on the my stuff from my own company Meliorvia both Hope Preparatory School and the Accursed setting for Savage Worlds which is uh, awesome both, yes well, it is yeah um, and at the moment a lot of my work right now is getting things wrapped up from the Kickstarter so that we can get that product out to our backers and we're really excited to be doing that Full information on Accursed is available at accursedrpg.com, and information on Meliorvia is on meliorvia.com. That's M-E-L-I-O-R-V-I-A.com, and I'm betting Daryl will put that in the show notes. Yes, I will. And we're also on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, All right. That didn't buy me as much time as I'd hoped. (laughs) Uh, (coughs) My my big current project in, in terms of Shadowrun, the next thing that people will be able to see... Uh, will be the, the kind of SR5 intro box set, uh, which has some, some pretty neat stuff in it, and I contributed fairly heavily, and I'm really hoping it goes to print pretty soon. Uh, just today, as we're recording this, Randall Bills did a blog post explaining that it's just gone to the printers. Yeah. It's, it's and he posted, uh, he posted the cover art and everything. It looks really good, and I'm really looking forward to it, and would re- really like a review copy, if at all possible, for any know, cool news. That would be pretty um, awesome. Since <laughs> since he said it went to print, I can say that, yes, it went to print. Um, <laughs> but at the time, I was like, I know it's going soon, I'll leave it mm-hmm. Uh But no, I, I wrote a lot of stuff for that, which would be pretty fun. Uh, I'm working on some fiction, like always. Uh, outside of Shadowrun, my, my current ongoing project is with uh, another video game, Satellite Rain, which is kind of a spiritual successor to the old Syndicate games. Uh, another kind of classic cyberpunk project uh i saw that kickstarter start up and i talked to the aussies and uh, i got on board there with some fiction for them uh and if the next kickstarter goal gets reached by slacker backers uh i will also be working a lot more hands-on with the writing of in-game material itself uh but either way but uh but either way i'll be getting in for the novella um and uh other than that i'm just Kind of seeing which way the freelancer winds blow me, uh, so to speak. Uh, just seeing what I can fit into my schedule and who I get offers from, uh, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, Shadowrun's always been kind of my first love. Uh, and it's been great to settle in with Shadowrun for the last couple of years uh, instead of, you know, drifting from project to project. It's been pretty cool. Do you have a homepage or uh, anything? Uh, I really people? don't. Uh, people are welcome to follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's just Russell Z, uh, Z-E-E, uh, at Twitter, and every now and then 
I'll randomly comment on something stupid that my dogs do or on something cool that I'm working on. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, I'm not quite organized enough <laughs> to uh, have an actual web page or anything set up. Well, it's funny, uh, Daryl, Russell, and I are all in Texas, and uh, we should probably try to find a, a time and a place to meet up and uh, chat about Shadowrun sometime in the future. Heck yeah. So, um, I want to say on behalf of the Gamers Tavern, uh, Daryl and I are really, really grateful to you guys for coming on board. We, uh, we really enjoyed having you on the show today. Thank you very much. Brom, thanks for the invite. It was fun. Absolutely. And uh, Daryl, is there anything else we need to say about Shadowrun before we close up? Play Shadowrun. <laughs> Succinct. I like Play Shadowrun, Chummers. There we go. That's it for this week's Gamers Tavern. Oh, that was a long one. I'd like to once again thank our guests John Dunn and Russell Zimmerman for joining us. If you like the show or have anything to say about Shadowrun, leave us a comment on GamersTavern.org. You can also find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash GamersTavern and on Twitter at Meet in a Tavern. Leave us a comment or rate us on iTunes and we might just read it on air. Next week we have guest Nicole Wakelin, a.k.a. Total Fangirl, joining us to talk about gaming with the family for the holidays as well as gateway games to introduce new people to the hobby. I'd like to thank you for listening and until next time, the tavern is closed. Hey, have you heard of The Strange? Hi, I'm Bruce Cordell. The Strange is a role-playing game that supposes that just outside of what we think of as normal Earth, there's an alien data network called The Strange. We're running a Kickstarter right now to fund The Strange. To find it, go to Google and type in The Strange Kickstarter and follow the link provided. The Strange is host to a number of hidden worlds called Recursions that player characters travel to and explore. One is a place called Arden, where magic powered by souls and other fabulous sorceries actually work. Bruce and I have designed The Strange to use the same rules engine as Numenera, a rules engine we call the Cypher System. If you know and like Numenera, you'll like The Strange. This message was brought to you by Monty Cook Games. If you want to know more about The Strange, go to kickstarter.com and search for us there.